Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as usual, is taking care of the audio, and we'll be editing it and smoothing it out for you. Uh, Jeff Myers is in uh, on vacation. He'll rejoin us uh, in the next episode, and uh, we look forward to having him back. We're in the middle of a series of studies on the letter of Paul to the Colossians, and uh, we reached a milestone in our last episode and finished off chapter one. We've all become Puritans recently, and uh, are taking uh, maybe one phrase at it, one phrase per episode and spending the whole time just doing one phrase. Not quite to that extent, but we're we're inching our way through, which is just great because uh, this is a, a dense and full letter, a lot of things to talk about. As we get started at the beginning of chapter two, I want to highlight a couple of things that uh, I noticed. One is that there does seem to be a, a kind of a structural, there's a kind of chiastic structure that's overlapping chapters one and two. I just was noticing repetitions of word groups and phrases. The word fullness, God was pleased for all the fullness to dwell in Christ in 119. We have fullness again in 2.9. This time it's uh, in him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So 119 and 2.9 kind of match up. In 122, we have this phrase about Christ's reconciling in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you holy and blameless before him in, without reproach. So the combination of flesh and body there is, is interesting. And then you have the same thing in chapter 2, verse 11, the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ is an unusual turn of phrase. And then you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So you have the repetition of flesh, flesh and body in 122 and 211. So uh, you have kind of an AB and then an A prime, B prime, in 119 and 122, and then the matching in one in 29 and 211. And then within that, you've got a small chiasm circling around the idea of flesh. Paul uh, suffers in his flesh for the sake of the body. Christ has suffered in the body of his flesh. Now, Paul suffers in the flesh for the body in 124. We looked at that last time. And then corresponding to that, Paul at the beginning of chapter two talks about not appearing in the flesh in verse one, then he also repeats the word flesh in verse five. It doesn't come out in some translations, but he says, I'm absent in flesh. So Paul's flesh is in view in, in 124 and again in 2, 1, and 5. And it seems like the center of this structure is uh, the revelation of the mystery that Paul talks about. And we discussed in 1, 26 and 27, the mystery that is Christ, who is the hope of glory. So you have this concern with the fullness on the either side. Christ's flesh, the body of his flesh on either side, Paul's own flesh within that, and then the mystery of Christ that's that's disclosed at the center of the structure. So that's uh, just a maybe helps to orient. It's probably hard to follow exactly what I'm saying without a diagram. But the other thing that I thought was in, intriguing in the beginning of chapter two, we talked last time about Paul sharing the sufferings of Christ and how he is, as he says, filling up what is lacking in Christ's own afflictions. He's suffering as Jesus did for the sake of the body. So there's this identification with Christ that's there in chapter one. And it seems to me he's doing something similar as he talks about his own relationship with the Colossian church and with the church at Laodicea at the beginning of chapter two, because we have this contrast between his personal absence or his fleshly absence. He struggles even for those churches that have not seen him in the flesh. And he's absent in the flesh, according to verse five. But then he's present in the spirit. 
which I think as an extension of the analogy he's or the association he's drawing between himself and Jesus, he's suffered like Jesus, he's suffering like Jesus for the sake of the body. Now, like Jesus, he's absent in the flesh, but present in the spirit. So again, as an apostle, he is not just a spokesman for Jesus, but his life and the very structure of his ministry is a kind of repetition, a non-identical repetition, you could say, of the ministry and the relationship that Christ has with the Colossians. The Colossians haven't seen Jesus in the flesh either. They know him only by the Spirit. And at this point, at least, they don't know Paul in the flesh. They know him only in the Spirit through his writing. One question I had coming out of that exactly is to speculate on exactly what he's getting at in verse 5 when he says he's with you in spirit. Absence in the flesh makes, that's that seems obviously to mean his he's physically and bodily absent, but in what sense is he with them in spirit? So the sentence in which he's with them in spirit is, is not entirely clear to me, so maybe someone else can uh, help out there. But in, in terms of the function of it in, in the argument, it seems to come on the back of not letting people uh, delude you with a plausible argument in, in verse four. And so he, he says that, don't let people delude you with those arguments. Um, four, although I'm absent in body, yet I'm I'm with you in spirit. And I wondered as I thought about that, if, if there's a sense in which it's very easy to, um, you know, uh, destroy people's arguments when they're not there to defend themselves, you know. And I wonder if part of it is saying that we're – that Paul was saying to the Colossians, they're to um, believe in and hold and, and and sort of defend his his views if people come to them with contrary arguments, as if he was there, you know, and and so sort of taking a, a, a high view of his um, of his doctrine and, and so forth, as if he was there to defend it himself. Would you take a spirit in verse five as a reference to the Holy Spirit? So there's, you know, I can say to friends in Ukraine, I'm there with you in spirit. I mean that I'm praying for them. I'm thinking about them in the midst of the war that they're suffering. But is there something stronger than that that Paul's aiming at, that he's there's an actual presence of believer with believer that is something more real than just an kind of, uh, I imagine that I'm there with you by virtue of the power of the spirit. So in spirit would be capitalized And there's a presence that we share with one another that transcends the boundaries and exceeds the boundaries of flesh and makes us present to one another. And the other thought I had is that um, he he is writing to them. He's praying for them. He said that at the beginning. So there's that connection. He's got a verbal connection with them. He's writing to them and they're reading what he's writing. Is that one of the means by which he's present in spirit? Is his prayer for them a means of presence in spirit? I would agree with that. I think We've also got very similar expression in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In that case, it seems that um, it's his commitment and his investment in their action. He may not be there with them in body, but he's with them in every other sense that matters. He's rejoicing in their positive growth in the strength of their faith. His mind is with them. He's praying for them. He's um, writing to them. And in every way that he can, he's pulling with them. And that obviously is made possible because of the unity of the Holy Spirit. 
in which the church is united. But um, that, I think, is um, including several different aspects of Paul's activity. It's not just um, one aspect. He's with them in his judgment, for instance, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So even though people might be trying to delude, uh, delude them, he's with them in uh, their commitment to the truth. He's um, writing to them to assure them of the truth, to ground them more fully in it. And he's also praying for them as they're um, reading and then facing these challenges. Yeah, that's helpful. And one of the uh, other aspects that this that uh, comes up in the first verse of chapter two, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. So he's, he's in some ways struggling on behalf of these churches, even though, as he goes on to say in verse one, they haven't seen his face in the flesh. So he is benefiting them. One question I have is what, what kind of struggle is he talking about? But he's somehow benefiting them even while being physically absent, which I don't think I, I take that. I, I know I should say, I know I don't take that seriously enough that I actually have some kind of means of presence with brothers and sisters who are separated from me by half a globe, that the spirit bridges those differences and that my struggles can somehow be struggles on their behalf, even though I'm not present with them. I can be, I can be with them in their joy and in their sorrow in some real way through the spirit. So what do you think he's getting at with the struggle? I mean, sometimes it's interpreted as struggle and prayer that he's, he's talked about praying for them from the beginning of the letter. Or do you think it's talking about his uh, suffering, his imprisonments, his struggle for the sake of the gospel is generally benefiting all the churches? Do you have any thoughts on what, what, what kind of struggle is he talking about? At the end of the book, he'll talk about struggling, um, Epaphras struggling on their behalf in his prayers. I think also more generally his um, struggling in prison, um, the fact that all of this is for the ministry to build up the church of which they are a part. So again, if we can extend that, you can think about each of us in our own locations. Each 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 of us has has particular challenges and battles that we have to engage. Or you think of pastors in particular churches that have to engage in battles in their particular churches. But because the church is one body, those struggles that a pastor or a church are having in one location are somehow a benefit, can be at least a benefit to and a blessing to those churches and believers that are not present with them. And again, just the, the sense that there's a, there's a mystical unity uh, among believers is, uh, seems to be the premise of this, this whole section. And it's something that, um, again, I, I confess, I don't think, think enough about it, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's normal for, for human beings to be, uh, preoccupied with those things that are immediately in our vision, you know, in our immediate horizon. Uh, the people we can see, the, the people we're dealing with all the time, the, the circumstances we're dealing with. Paul clearly has a wider uh, conception of what he's doing, even though he's not actually ever met these people, he still sees himself as struggling on their behalf. I've always found the opening chapter of First Thessalonians very um, striking on that front, the way that Paul talks about the faith of the Thessalonians going forth along with the message of the gospel. And there's a sense in which their faith, which is the proper response to the gospel, comes to its full fruit as 
the news of that faith itself is gospelized. It's spread as good news to all these other churches so that they see what's happening in um, the church of the Thessalonians. And they're seeing something of the gospel itself, the power of Christ within that situation. And Paul's work very much is forming the connections between the churches and spreading these sorts of messages not just the message of the gospel itself, but the message of the effectiveness of the gospel in various locations to other locations to give the body a sense of itself. And through that, to bring the faith of some to its full fruit and also to re reassure and encourage others in their faith as they hear about the fruitfulness of others' faith. Yeah, that's really helpful. To turn to, he turns the, uh, the effect that his preaching has into a further a further proclamation of the gospel. The, the good news is not just Jesus is Lord, but the good news is Colossians have received Jesus as Lord and they're rejoicing and they're bearing fruit. That becomes part of the, part of the good news. That's, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And, and it goes back to our uh, discussion earlier in our series about the, the way that epistles are functioning in the early church as a, as you said, as a kind of a, a means for binding the body together in one, in one mind, in one heart, in one joy, they're all sharing joy with one another because they're getting news about uh, the uh, about one another's uh, because they're getting news about the joy of other of other believers. Whatever the struggle is that he's in, James, did you have something you want to say? Oh, only to say it makes sense to me that this struggle would be just a fairly broad and generic thing that all people can um, uh, undergo. I was thinking of um, where is it Philippians one towards the end of the chapter. It says it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then it goes on to engage in the same conflict. And I'm pretty sure it's the same word there, go and, um, you know, fight. It's the same as fight the good fight again in, in 2 Timothy 4. Um, uh, engaged in, in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And it, it kind of makes sense to me that that would be just this quite generic um, struggle which can be a huge encouragement. I can think of people who uh, I know who have just suffered very well in afflictions for, for the sake of Christ, and they haven't made a big deal uh, about it or sort of written anything about it, but just their quiet endurance has been a huge encouragement for me to, to witness. And, and that sort of suffering can, I think, have that... Um, uh, that exhortational and encouraging effect on, on the wider body. Right. So Paul also describes in verse two, uh, the effect of the struggle. He's struggling on their behalf so that their hearts may be encouraged. And so they can be knit together in love, knit together in the treasure or the wealth, the uh, riches of assurance of understanding. And again, he returns to the idea of the mystery of Christ in whom all are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the struggle is having the effect of knitting the church together in love, the Corinthian church, yes, but also all the, all the churches together, and to giving, giving them the assurance of knowledge, the knowledge of the mystery that is Christ that we've already, that we've already discussed. Beginning in verse 4, he, he turns to a, a warning about persuasive arguments and the dangers that they're in from false teachers. And that's going to be something that's going to be developed in the remainder of chapter two, at least. That's going to be a, a central a central theme of these chapters. I had a quick comment on this idea of being knit together. 
We've spoken about that in terms of um, Jew and Gentile uh, last time round, I think, in terms of um, uh, the mystery among the Gentiles. But it seems to be a very broad idea in Colossians. So there are these um, partnerships, uh, potentially stressful partnerships later on um, discussed between um, slave and free or between um, uh, parents and children, husband and, and wife. And, and this idea of, of being knit together in, in love just seems to be such a consistent theme of, of Colossians, the, the way in which if you just naturally take a bunch of very different people and chuck them together, the normal thing is that people just don't get on. And um, the, the church is, is obviously meant to be completely uh, different to that, united. Verse 6 of chapter 2 is often taken as kind of a theme verse of the letter. So Paul, Paul begins his, uh, states what his, he's explained to the Corinthians, the Colossians rather, he's explained to the Colossians who Jesus is. He's talked about his role in the proclamation of reconciliation and in the achievement of reconciliation in his suffering and in his preaching and his teaching. And they have received Christ. They've become believers. And then verse 6 and 7 are kind of the theme verses going to be developed. Uh, having received Christ, so walk in Him. Continue in the way that you've in the way that you've begun. Persevere in walking in Christ. But then he mixes, interestingly, mixes the metaphors. He starts out with an image of walking, uh, walking in Christ. But then, uh, firmly rooted suggests a kind of uh, a, a arboreal image, a tree firmly rooted. Uh, built up in him, that's a that's an architectural image, you're being built up, established in their faith, another uh, quasi-architectural image. Uh, so there's a there's a mixture of a mixture of metaphors here that describes what the Colossians should should do. Having received Christ, they should walk in him, but they should walk in a way that's rooted. Walking also means being built up on the foundation of the faith that's already been established and continuing in that in that faith. In order to do that, as I, as I said, uh, he begins the warning about uh, being deluded in verse 4, and then in verse 8, he returns to that, see that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. One note at the beginning, uh, N.T. Wright points out the, the verb for take captive there has is a pun on synagogue. It has uh, uh, it uh, sounds somewhat like, let me see if I can find the, is the verb, which has some both etymological connections with synagogue and also it has an oral connection with synagogue. So there may be a hint already in verse eight that the ones who are taken captive are going to be Jewish false teachers that uh, will deceive them and take them away from Christ. We discussed this at the beginning when we started our series on Colossians about who, who, who are the false teachers that Paul's uh, addressing. Are there actually false teachers threatening the Colossian church? That, that is a question is Paul addressing an actual threat that's that's happening within the church, or is he just saying he knows that once a church begins to be alive and be fruitful, then there will be a a serpent will sneak into the garden. He knows that that will happen, and so he's warning them against that kind of deception. He's kind of uh, preempting that attack. Uh, he's telling the the bride, the church that is in Eve warning this Eve that uh, a, a serpent can come and, and attempt to deceive her. Uh, is that the situation or is there an actual, is there an actual attack going on in the church? And I don't know that we resolved that question. I'm, my inclination 
is to think that uh, what Paul's doing is more the latter, that he's warning them against the potential for false teaching rather than addressing the kinds of false teachers that he does in Galatians and Corinthians and elsewhere, where there's an, there is an actual ongoing threat to the church. It feels to me like the warnings are sufficiently general to um, support your last point, Peter, to think that it is this slightly preemptive thing. And um, it also, just touching now on the issue of exactly what that teaching was, feels as if um, those teachers are going to be offering something which is intended to promote sort of growth um, by means of some slightly new revelation, perhaps even Gnostic. And part of the reason I, I say that is verses six and seven, Paul there wants to stress, I think, that the way forward, the way to um, grow isn't to embrace some new you know, add-on um, to the faith, but to walk in him as he received um, Christ Jesus the Lord, rooted uh, and built up in him. And, and so sort of the way to uh, grow is, in a sense, to sort of dig deeper into existing foundations rather than to, um, uh, yeah, to, to bolt on the, these extra bits to the faith. Yeah, and that fits the logic of what, he, what he's been saying about Christ. Back in, two nine, uh, back in 119, a father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. So Christ is the one in whom fullness dwells, pleroma. Uh, There's a fullness of deity in chapter 2, verse 9. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then verse 10, in him, you've been made complete. So the Christ is the repository of the fullness of God. Christ is also the repository and the treasure chest that can, includes all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, according to 2.3. And now you're in him. So Christ contains both the Colossian believers and also the fullness of God and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So uh, there's no need to go anywhere else to seek wisdom and knowledge. There's no, there's no need to go to try to surpass Christ because uh, all the fullness is already there in him. And if you're seeking fullness, then there's, uh, yeah, there's nowhere else to, where you can find something fuller. Something like circumcision would not just be um, looking elsewhere for fullness, but would actually be a division of the fullness that is found in Christ, um, as we see in the foregrounding of the idea of the mystery as the bring together of Jew and Gentile. Reading through this passage, I think connecting the beginning of chapter or the earlier parts in chapter one with the Christ hymn with this part here, we see something of the force of the centrality of Christ. And we use the expression Christ-centered, or it has been used far too much. And the power of that reality has been sapped as a result. But when Paul tries to grapple with this, the fact that he'll move from one metaphor to another, I think, expresses just how comprehensive and powerful uh, joining reality this is. Everything rotates around Christ. And when you're dealing with these potential threats or even actual threats, to have Christ at the very heart, Christ is the one that's the foundation, Christ is the one that's the goal, and Christ in every single thing, the one that things are taking their bearings from, enables you to resist, enables you to overcome, and enables you to persevere. And perhaps for me, the one hymn that really captures this is St. Patrick's Breastplate that speaks about Christ in every single 
aspect of our lives, Christ in every single um, area of the compass, as it were, Christ relative to us in every single position. And as we live our lives in that way, in a way that's not just centered on Christ in the narrow sense, but um, it's within Christ's orbit in every single respect, um, we will be able to face any of the challenges that come up against us. This is not just medicine for a particular occasion. This is the solid food upon which the people of God will be able to stand up to any adversary. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm